we're going to see that passage of scripture when we get to the metaphor this morning. But um, hey, this is the eighth message in the eight marks of the church. This is the final uh, message in this series of the eight marks of the church, and it's the stent and scattered church. And so we're going to be looking at that, and we've been talking about, you know, a, a different legend or a myth, and uh, this one pertains to missions itself, uh, because we're talking about being sent and scattered. This comes from a lecture by Bill Mounts about the top ten myths about missions. Uh, another part of our, he says, another part of our educational task in working with local churches is to realize that many people have myths about the missionary enterprise. I call this lecture Dispelling the Top Ten Myths About Missions. We have many, many faulty ideas about missions that must be separated from our thinking so that we can be better, so that we can be better equipped to think appropriately about the great missionary cause. Now, I'm going to give you the top ten myths, and in my outline, in my notes, there's a, a, a grander explanation for each of these. And so if you want that, the best way to get a hold of it is tomorrow when I upload the, the audio um, onto our website, I also upload my entire text. It's there. You can read it from there or download it, um, and then you can read a, a greater explanation for these. But I'm not going to give you all of that today. But uh, here's, here they are, the top ten. Number one, unreached means gospel resistant. And he says, it doesn't mean gospel resistant. It means that they're just unreached. Like, they haven't even heard the gospel. Number two, evangelism always leads to church planting. It's not necessarily true. Um, it's a myth. There's other times where evangelism doesn't lead to church planting. Number three, missions means going to live in, jung in a jungle somewhere. And we know that's not true because we know missionaries that we support, and they're not in the jungle, Right? Number four, the remaining work of missions can be done by national Christians. True, unless there's no pastors or no Christians in that area, right? So we still need um, expatriate missionaries that are going in. Number five, missionaries have destroyed cultures. In reality, have enhanced some cultures. Now, that's not to say that that hasn't happened. I don't, I don't want you to be, I don't want to misstate there. There have been cultures and missionaries that have have uh, done damage to different cultures. Number six, there are no job opportunities in missions. Um, this is sad. I can't tell you how many times I've had people that I've worked with in ministry who are doing ministry work, and a family member or a friend or someone else will say, well, when are you going to get a real job? This, this is the greatest jobs, I think, because we're called to this. This, this is a great commission. This is what we as followers of Christ should be doing. That thing that you do to make money is a side job. It's a side job to the primary job of sharing the gospel. We're going to talk all about that today. So there are all kinds of job opportunities in missions. Number seven, missions is only for the super spiritual. We're all sinners, by the way, just a little secret. Missionaries struggle the same way that you do. They have the same difficulties and problems that you do. So it's not just for the super spiritual. Number eight, short-term mission projects are sufficient to fulfill the Great Commission. Myth. We're going to talk all about that today. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. The imperative verb, the imperative command in that passage is make disciples. You can't do that in a short-term ministry, missions trip. You can begin the process, but you can't sustain it. Um... Number nine, missionary commitment is mainly about giving money. How many of us are like, I'm just going to ease my conscience. God's calling me to missions or to full-time ministry, but I'm going to just ease my conscience by giving money, right? I'll be okay. 
And yet God still hasn't released you from that calling, has he? Number 10, hearing the gospel is the same as being reached by the gospel. That's a myth. That's not, that's not true. So there are many common myths about the church that are misguided at best and dangerous at worst. And so the myth that we're going to look at today is you can gather as a church without going as a church and be a healthy church. Now, we have an incredible history here at Idaville UB Church of sending out missionaries. We, some that are still on the mission field today are still serving in ministry, full-time pastoral ministry or a support staff in ministry. So we want to continue that process. We want to continue to let that happen. So we need to be not just a church that gathers together, but going as a church. And uh, this myth of belief can be dangerous for two reasons. It gives a local church the false sense of security that they can holistically be the church without being with people who are not yet part of the church. It's like, this is what God's called us to. <clears throat> he has not called us to a holy huddle here. He's called us to be salt and light, as Jackie read. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit in our communities. Number two, it gives the church a distorted view of the heart of Jesus, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so we know that this is a myth, because Jesus said a clear mark of a healthy church would be a church filled with people uh, who want to tell people outside the church about him. We should want to do that. It should be the greatest desire of our, of our lives, of our heart, is to share with others what Jesus is doing in and through us, how he's transformed us. So as we think about that, would you just bow your heads with me, and would you ask the Holy Spirit to just open your hearts and minds today for what he wants you to receive? Lord, we come to you as just uh, people that need your help in this area, Lord God. We struggle in this area out of fear and, and, and so many other reasons, Lord God. Um, we do, sometimes we don't even want to hear your voice. We don't want to listen to your voice, Lord God, because we know what you're calling us to. And it, and it makes us afraid, and we don't want to do that. We want to remain right where we are. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit today, you would work in powerful ways. Would you even call some people this morning into what you are calling them to? Whether it's full-time ministry, whether it's missionary work, I pray that you would do that work in their hearts and minds today. Give them boldness and, and, and strength to step into what you have called them to. And so we just... Ask this in your precious son's name. Amen. So we're going to look at the sent and scattered church. That's, um, the, that's the mark today. And as always, we're going to look at it from three perspectives. We're going to look at it as the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the early church, and the teachings of the apostles. And so uh, hold on. Uh, this is exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this message this morning. We're going to first look at the teachings of Jesus from two passages, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. So if you turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and uh, I'll read that in just a moment, but I want to give you a little bit of background. Luke is writing in the book of Acts to Theophilus, and he, he is writing to him, and he says, I'm writing to you about what I formerly wrote, in the, which is the gospel of Luke, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up to heaven. Then Luke tells Theophilus that Jesus appeared to his apostles and disciples over a 40-day period, speaking about the kingdom of God and giving them commands. And when they were meeting together with Jesus, they asked him when he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. That's an important phrase right there, the kingdom to Israel. 
This question probably arises from the, uh, the fact that Jesus tells them in, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. So if Jesus has all the authority, uh, then surely he would be able to restore the kingdom to Israel. They were thinking about shedding Roman rule here. They weren't thinking about. They were thinking about an earthly kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom, not a heavenly kingdom. Jesus was not talking about this earthly kingdom, the Roman rule. He was talking about God's kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. And Jesus told them that they were not to know the times or the dates that God had set for that to take place. He said, you don't need to focus on that. Don't focus on that. I have something so much more important for you to focus on. He wanted them to focus on spreading the gospel, the spiritual kingdom, instead of when the kingdom would be restored, the physical or earthly kingdom. They had work to do prior to God's kingdom being restored on earth. And so he's like, don't focus on the earthly. Focus on the spiritual. Focus on the heavenly. And then we see the words um, uh, that Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples there. We see a couple of things here in that, those verses. He's talking about power here. The Greek word for power is dunamis. Now, and here's where it, it came into the English language. Um, Boyce in his commentary helps us to understand that. The Greek word dunamis entered the English language when the Swedish chemist and engineer Alfred Bernard Nobel made a discovery that became his fortune. He discovered a power stronger than anything the world had known up to that time. He asked a friend of his who was a Greek scholar what the word for explosive power was in Greek. His friend answered dunamis. Nobel said, well, I'm going to call my discovery by that name. So he called his explosive power dynamite. That's where it came into the English language, right there. Dynamite from the Greek word dunamis, power. So the, uh, the apostles were going to have uh, power from the Holy Spirit to do several things. To know the truth of the gospel and preach it with boldness. They were going to have the power, the ability to speak in other languages that they did not already know. The ability to do miracles as proof of their commissioning by Jesus and the ability to endure many trials. And so the power of the Holy Spirit would enable them to be Jesus' witnesses. That's another key word here is witnesses. The Greek word for witness is martus. We get our English word for martyr from this Greek word. In the historical sense, the Greek word simply means one who testifies for one or to be a witness for one, serve him by testimony. And that's, what, that's how it's used here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But in other places, in an ethical sense, it has the meaning that we associate with it in the English language, someone who gives their life as proof of the strength and genuineness of their faith, a martyr. So in other parts of Scripture, we see it used that way. <clears throat> One commentator comments, While some of God's people have a calling to evangelism, all of God's people are expected to be witnesses and tell the lost about the Savior. You know, so, so many times we say, well, I'm not really gifted in evangelism, so I'm not going to go and, and try to, to talk with anybody. Nope. Can't get out of it. We're all called to be witnesses, to go and share what we have learned, how Jesus has transformed us. We don't have the opportunity to get out of that. Listen, the things that 
God's teaching you when you're studying his word, those are the things you can share with other people. The way that God transformed your life from a rebellion against Jesus to a friend of God, that's an important, that's an important uh, conversation to have with people and to share. Another commentator goes on and says, every believer should be a quote-unquote world Christian, able to function for the Savior from the other side of the street to the other side of the world. And then what Jesus tells them is you're going to do this in an ever larger circle of outreach. The apostles are to start in Jerusalem, then move to Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts really outlines this increasing outreach. In chapters, Acts chapter, chapters 1 through 7, we see the ministry in Jerusalem. Those seven chapters talk about that. Chapters 8 to 9, we see the ministry of the apostles within Judea and Samaria. So they're, they're doing what Jesus told them to do. And then in Acts chapters 10 to 28, it's to the ends of the earth. A lot of that's Paul and what he's doing in these missionary journeys. So we see Judea and Samaria. We see that the apostles uh, uh, fulfilled what Jesus had commissioned them to do. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read these words. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. There they are. They got scattered. They were sent. And they started sharing with other people about Jesus. And then uh, in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 5 and verse 14, we read these words. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So there goes Peter and John down into Samaria, just like God had commissioned them to do. And then Paul's missionary journeys took the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the known world. Barnes says the uttermost parts of the earth have been given to the Savior, and churches should not rest until he whose right it is shall come and reign. Like this, All authority was given to Jesus, and he's like commissioned us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we as a church shouldn't stop until Christ returns. That's what Barnes is telling us here. Like, don't stop. Jesus encouraged his apostles to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and then to spread the gospel to, every, uh, to ever larger circles. And in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 19 and 20, he tells them what the gospel outreach should look like. So you're going to have to flip over uh, to, the, to that passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And this is what God's word says. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the very first word in verse 19 is therefore. Maybe you've heard this little phrase in the past. We have to ask the question, what is the therefore therefore? What's the purpose? What's it pointing to? It's pointing back to what Jesus just said to them in verse 18, which I already referenced earlier. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because all authority has been given to Jesus, he is commanding them to make disciples. In this passage of Scripture, there's a bunch of verbs, but there's only one that's really, really important. And it's an imperative command, and it's make disciples. That's what he's commanding us to do. The other verbs are all participles that are kind of helping us to understand how to do that. 
when we should do that. So making disciples, this is the only command in these verses, and it's, like I said, an imperative. Like, this is what you should be doing. So disciples, being a disciple meant more than being a convert to a church or a church member. Apprentice might be an equivalent term. A disciple uh, attached himself to a teacher, identified with him, learned from him, and lived with him. He learned not simply by listening, but also by doing. That's Warren Wearsby. And then Weber in his commentary says, At the heart of our mission is the reproduction in others of what Jesus has produced in us. What has he produced in us? He goes on and says, faith, obedience, growth, authority, compassion, love, and a bold, truthful message as his witnesses. They were learners commanded to produce more learners. This is what it's about. And so what is a disciple of Jesus Christ then? It's someone who does these things, has believed on Jesus has been baptized as an expression of their faith, is connected with a body of believers where they are learning God's word, which are the truths of the faith, and then is able to go out and win others and teach them. That's what our responsibility is, the follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby, I love this quote, how much faster our churches would grow and how much stronger and happier our church members would be if each one were discipling another believer. So that begs two questions. As disciples of Jesus Christ, who am I discipling? It also begs the question, whom am I being discipled by? We have two responsibilities there. We are learners who are commanded to make more learners. And this model of, disciple, of make, disciples making disciples is part of revitalizing and strengthening the church. That's something we've been praying for. And every one of us can share what God is teaching us through our own personal devotional time. Just telling someone else. And I encourage you to do this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the sanctifying church. I said, here, we learn from the sanctifying church that message. Where do we learn what it looks like to pursue holiness? To become more like Jesus. Do you remember what we learned? It's through God's word. His truth. And I, so I encourage you to read God's Word every day. We have the Spiritual Life Journal where it has a passage you can read each day to read through the entire Bible in a year. But I, I told you, don't stop there. Start journaling what God's teaching you. But don't stop there. Find someone to tell what God's teaching you. That's discipleship. It's just that simple. And so I'm going back to that message today and saying I'm encouraging you to do that again. Do that again. Read God's word every day. Journal what God's teaching you. Then share it with someone else. And then I bet they're going to share something with you too. That's, the, that's who you're discipling and whom you're being discipled by. There are three participles then that help us understand the imperative command of making disciples. The first one is go. And it's in the aorist uh, tense passive voice. You're like, I don't know what that means. I'm going to help you understand. It means this. This is how it, it, it should... Um, this is how we should understand the word go in the original language. While you are going or when you have gone, it's an ongoing action, not a one-time thing. So this isn't like just go once, share the gospel with one person, and then come back and be like, I accomplished a great commission. I'm good. No, this is an ongoing process. You continue to go. 
You continue to go. And the point is that we believers are active. We are not inert, as Weber says. Going means crossing boundaries to make disciples. Going across the street, going to dinner with an unbelieving friend, going into the inner city, going beyond one's comfort zone to make the gospel accessible to the lost. And it's an ongoing process. The second um, participle is baptizing. It's in the present uh, tense, active voice. And again, it means the same thing. It's um, an ongoing process. As individuals believe on Jesus for salvation, they are to be baptized. It's, it's not just a once and done. Well, we need to continue to evangelize so that people come to know Christ so that we can continue to do baptisms, right? That's what I'm trying to communicate here. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward decision. Baptism does not save you. It's an expression publicly that you are saved, that you are adopting and receiving the system of religion that's Christianity. That's what uh, Barnes brings out in his quote. He says, So to be baptized in the name of the Father means publicly by a significant right to receive the system of religion, to bind to the soul, to obey his laws, to be devoted to him, to receive as the guide and comforter of the life his system of religion, to obey his laws and trust to his promises, to be baptized unto the Son in like manner, is to receive him as the Messiah, our prophet, priest, and king, to submit to his laws and to receive him as the Savior of the soul. To be baptized unto the Holy Ghost is to receive him publicly as the sanctifier, comforter, and guide of the soul. And I've mentioned that every time we've done baptism, or talked about baptisms, that we, we believe in believer's baptism. This is after someone accepts Jesus as their Savior. We realize that there are those that were baptized as infants, and, and we just encourage you, as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to go and, and go through believer's baptism. The final participle is teaching. And again, this is in the present active. So the present tense, active voice. And again, it means keep on teaching them. Don't stop. By fulfilling the teaching portion of the Great Commission, we take believers at every stage of spiritual maturity to the next stage of growth, as Weber points out. And there's this great promise at the end. Jesus tells us that he will be with us always as we accomplish his great commission. This fact of his presence with us is something that will last until he returns. So Jesus teaches us that we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to make disciples in every part of the world until he returns. That's what Acts 1 and Matthew 28 are telling us today. That's the teaching of Jesus. But what about the teaching of uh, the early church? We just have to flip over to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. As you're turning there, I'll just give you a little bit of background We've been looking at Acts chapter 2 quite a bit as it pertains to the teaching of the early church and the eight marks of the church. This was the establishment of the early church, so it's very important for us to study. And what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, is the apostles doing just what Jesus had commanded them to do, beginning in Jerusalem. They were making disciples of all nations, especially in Jerusalem. And remember, people from all over the known world were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, which was one of the three major annual feasts for the Jews, and they were required to be there. Like, you need to go. If you're a, a young man up through an older man, you need to be at, at these three main, main fi- feasts or festivals. And so they're from all over what they call the diaspora, which is just the known world at that time. 
And we see here that 3,000 had already been added to their number after Peter spoke at Pentecost. That kind of started off this whole thing. And we see the fellowship of the believers in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is what God's word says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." How exciting. <laughs> Man, if you don't get excited about that, I don't know. Uh, we might have to take your pulse. But um, we see this fellowship of the believers. What are they devoted to? The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, which was the agape meals, and to breaking of bread, which was communion, to prayer. That's the model of the early church. And they, they, the apostles were able to do miraculous signs uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything was in common. They were spending time together, lots of time together, every day in the temple courts and in uh, personal homes. They were selling their possessions and goods. They used the proceeds from those sales to provide for the needs of others. And like I said, they had this daily commitment. They met together in the temple courts for teaching. They shared meals together in their homes with joy. They praised God. They enjoyed each other's company. And then we see that the Lord added to their number daily. Notice that the, word of sal- uh, the work of salvation is the Lord's work. The Lord added to their number daily. I, I confess to you today that, boy, I, I want to be able to say, <laughs> I want to see salvations, right? I want to be there when people give their lives to Christ and are transformed completely. So in my humanness, I'm like, well, okay, Lord, I know it's your work, but I want to be a part of it, you know? I want to see it happen. And sometimes... I'm just like Paul or Apollos. I'm just planting a seed or watering the seed. God's the one who gives the increase. But boy, I want to be there. I think that's just our desire to see people transformed. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And so, like I say, sometimes I struggle. I'm like, I know it's your work, Lord. The apostles were faithful to preach and teach the word of God. The Holy Spirit did the work in them, hearts and minds of unbelievers, and Jesus provided salvation. We see the work of the Trinity right there. The NIV Life Application Bible says, A healthy Christian community attracts people to Christ. The Jerusalem church's zeal for worship and brotherly love was contagious. A healthy, loving church will grow in numbers. And then the question is this, what are you doing to make your church the kind of place that will attract others to Christ? That's why we're talking about this theme, brotherly love. We, that, that needs to be a, the ethos of who we are as a body of believers. And as that becomes our ethos, who we are, our communities are going to see that. They're going to be attracted to Christ. They're going to want to be here. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds and the hearts and minds of those that he's drawing. Gangle goes on and he says this, instead of a humble and subdued group of Christians praying quietly in an upper room, we now have over 3,000 people all over the city praising, praying, and witnessing for Jesus. The early church was a healthy church, a veritable model of what congregations can be in our day when they take seriously the biblical qualification of what it means to be the church. You're like, what is the biblical qualification of what it means to be a church? We just read it. 
in Acts chapter 2. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Devoted to God's word and the teaching of God's word. To gathering together for agape, love feasts, fellowship together. To communion, the breaking of bread. To prayer. That's what we're trying to model here. That's what we're trying to do here. That's why we're focusing on prayer so much. That's why we teach God's word verse by verse through books of the Bible. Because we want you to know God's word. That's why we observe Holy Communion. That's why on uh, Tuesday night's men and women's Bible study and during the Genesis study, we were having a meal together prior to. That's why on Thursday night discipleship, we have a meal together. It's about developing this love for one another so that we can transform our communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the early church modeled what Jesus had taught. But what about the apostles? We're just going to look at one verse back in uh, 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 12. Let me just read it for you. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. You're welcome to. This is what Peter writes. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the Life Application Bible says, Peter's readers were scattered among unbelieving Gentiles who were inclined to believe and spread vicious lies about Christians. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, our actions are just as powerful and important as our words, what we're preaching and teaching. Our actions are just as important. So I'm going to meddle a little bit this morning, okay? Just, just a little bit. We tell people in our community who we work with, our neighbors, man, God is so important to me. I love him. Uh, church is important to me. This is great. And then we come once a month. Or we come every six weeks. But we still tell people, church and God are so important to me. And, and, and you know, we ask people, well, are you studying God's word? Are you reading God's word every day? Well, are you praying every day? Mm. Are, are you really committed to God and the church? Or are all these other things taking precedence over God and the church? So are our actions showing what we're teaching and preaching? Is this of value to you? And so we see a metaphor. We not only see the, the teachings of Jesus and the early church and the apostles, we also see a metaphor, a picture of this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And um, Jackie read some of those verses for you this morning. But the metaphor is this. It's the light of the world and how we should live in the world. So turn with me, if you would, to, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 to 16. Jackie read the first two verses of that for us. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It, can no long, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men, just to be used as making a path. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do... Uh, people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus uses two word pictures to help us understand our role as his disciples in this world. The first is salt. 
And there's three purposes for salt that we can identify. First is for preservation. In the ancient world, they used salt to preserve food, especially meat. It kept it from getting rotten, unless the salt wasn't really salty, and then it's still spoiled. So the salt they're talking about is not the salt that we are familiar with, the iodized salt that we have today that's a chemical uh, reaction. This is like salt that's taken from the earth. There's all kinds of other organic material in it. And so sometimes the closer you get to the, the pure vein of that, the more salty it is. So, just as salt preserves or kills bacteria in food, the kingdom servant prevents or confronts corruption in the world. That's what Weber says. The second thing that salt does is it flavors. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 tell us this. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The footnote in, in my Bible says, seasoned with salt means that what we say should be quote-unquote tasty and should encourage further dialogue. Like, what are we saying about Jesus? Man, that should encourage people like, what? God answered prayer. How? He provided where, where and when? It, sh- it should intrigue them to ask more questions. Third thing that salt does is it makes us thirsty. So do we make anyone thirsty for Jesus Christ? Are they desiring to know more, to drink deep of Jesus and his word? Jesus also used the word picture of light. We are, we are already the light of the world through Jesus Christ. It's not something that we have to become. Because of our relationship with Christ, we are already light. We're reflecting his light. The city on a hill and the lamp on a lampstand were, the per, uh, were for the purpose of being seen and providing a point of focus. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be seen as we reflect the light of Jesus to our world. Weber says the function of light is to make reality or truth visible, thereby giving direction and guidance by what is seen. We're supposed to be telling people about the truth of the gospel, the truth that's found in God's word. Uh, Barnes continues, he says, Let your holy life, your pure conversation, and your faithful instruction be everywhere seen and known, always in all societies, in all business, at home and abroad, in prosperity and adversity. Let it be seen that you are real Christians. And so the metaphor shows us that we are to be sent and scattered, seen and not hidden, so that the world might see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. So how does this apply to us? How will we know if this mark of the church marks our church? Four ways. Number one, we will go to them, meaning those outside of the church, through God's great mandate. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16 tell us this. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So we are called to scatter throughout our communities, our state, our nation, and the world and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone. Number two, we will love them through God's great commandment. Matthew chapter 22, verse 39 tells us this. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This goes with our theme for 2022, to love one another. Number three, we will share with them God's great exchange. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We just had the secret church six, which was the cross of Christ. And uh, David Platt referenced this verse multiple times throughout that 
six hours that we were together. And by the way, that was an incredible, <laughs> that was an incredible teaching. If you missed it, you can, I'll show you how to catch up. It's all free and it's online. So this is what we are to, to witness to others about concerning Jesus and the gospel. Jesus came down from heaven, grew up to be a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, and willingly died on a cross to take our punishment for sin. Our right standing before God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. No other way. You see, because we're all born sinners. We're born with a want to to have our own way. No one has to teach us how to do that. It's a part of our human nature. And, and too often people say, well, I'm a good person, God, and God's loving, so he'll, just, uh, he'll accept me unto heaven, whether I have a relationship with him, and, and that's not what Scripture teaches. <laughs> it doesn't teach that because God is all loving that he's going to let you into heaven, number one, but it also does not teach that you're a good person. We just have to look at a couple of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? And if you say you haven't, you just lied. Right? We've all told a lie. Bent the truth. Oh, that's just one of the Ten Commandments. H have you ever used God's name as a cuss word? Mm, whoops, yeah. <laughs> that's two. Um, have you, uh, yeah, what's it? I'm trying to think of the third one I want to use. Anyhow, have you ever killed anyone? You're like, no, I haven't done that. But God's word tells us Jesus kind of knocks that up the notch in the New Testament. He says, if you hate someone in your heart, it's as though you murdered them. That's three. And then, uh, have you ever lusted after anything or anyone? You're like, well, no, not really. Well, he says to look at someone, a woman, with lust as though you committed adultery with her. And so, you know, that's just four of the ten. And then God's word tells us that if we just fail at one, it's as though we've broken them all. So we're not good people. That's why God had to send Jesus from heaven to earth to die on a cross to take our punishment for sin. We needed saved. And so that's what Christ did for us. And so we can uh, be grateful for this verse that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can be in right standing before God because of what Jesus has done for us. Number four, we will disciple them through God's great commission. We already went through this passage. It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. What he's commissioned us to do, make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching. And our desire as a body of believers here is to have a church filled with people who want to tell people outside the church about him. So we had those surveys that we did with the Restore Renewal Ministries. And there's five questions that were in this section about the sent and scattered church. One of them was in the top 15 of the least difficult for us, so we really understand this, we grasp this, and this is what it is. Our church consistently teaches on evangelism, outreach, and missions. We definitely strive to teach on those three things, and it's encouraging to know that you feel like we're doing that. That was the least difficult for us, but how about the most difficult? It was eight out of 10 and it's in the top 10, and this is what it says. The people in our church know and understand our church's plan for reaching the, gospel, or reaching the people in our community and the world. Now, here's, here's where I know some of you struggled with, that, with those, this kind of question. You're like, I don't know how, what people are thinking in our church. I have no idea. The, so when it says the people in our church know and understand, they're like, I don't know if they know or understand. So they, they answered it uh, kind of on the lower side. 
And, uh, but I want to share with you today just a, a portion of our model for reaching the people in our community and the world so that you'll know. And you can have confidence that those in the church know. We do it on three levels. And perhaps this just wasn't communicated enough or clearly, but we've been doing this for quite a few years now. We serve locally through food pantries and through the Benevolence Fund and through um, other service projects that we do. We serve our community locally, and we do that all the time. Domestically, we try to do a domestic mission trip every other year so that we're getting out somewhere in the United States. And what we've been doing recently is we've been going to the, the locations of the missionaries that we support here that uh, work in the United States, from Spokane, Washington, to um, Michigan, to Mississippi, to you name it. Uh, we've tried to do domestic trips to those areas to be an encouragement to the missionaries that we support and to serve alongside them in the ministry God's called them to. But we also look to do global, where we try to put a plan an international mission trip on the other year, the other off year, every other year. We've been to Jamaica most recently. Um, years ago, we went to Belize. Uh, some of you went to, I can't remember, was it Peru or, I no. Anyhow, what's that? Honduras, that's where it was. So <clears throat> I have an opportunity coming up in August where I'll get to go to Guatemala. I'm uh, looking forward to that trip because it, we already have 17 churches in Guatemala, the United Brethren in Christ, and this uh, organization, World Help, uh, is connecting um, pastors and churches here in the United States with villages in Guatemala. So I'm excited to see what God might do that we can partner together with a village and be a support to them on an ongoing basis internationally. That leaves three final questions. They all fell in the middle, um, so they weren't difficult or easy for us. And here they are. The mission of our church is clearly in line with the mission of God in the world. I want you to focus your attention here. I want you to look at the front of your bulletin at the very top underneath our logo. It says that we pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. That comes directly from Matthew chapter 28. I want you to know with confidence that our mission as a church is clearly in line with the mission of God in the world. You don't have to have any doubts. That should be the mission of every church. It's the Great Commission. The second one of these three, our church consistently encourages the members of our church to engage in evangelism, outreach, and missions. We provide opportunities, like I said, locally, domestically, and globally. One of the goals for this year is to create a team that will intentionally and actively share the gospel in our community. We're working towards that. We're not there yet. We have the revival on the farm that's coming up this summer. This is the second year we're doing it. Um, there's now 11 churches that are involved in that in, in the York Springs area. It's June 5th through the 8th. It's a Sunday through a Wednesday, and each church that's participating will be doing prayer walks through their community to pray for the, and invite individuals to attend the revival services. This will be an incredible opportunity for all of us to engage in evangelism, outreach, and missions. And so I want to encourage you, when we make that information where it's going to be after Easter, that we're going to be doing that, so that information's coming, we want to encourage as many people from here. We're going to walk our community, and we're going to ask them if there's a way we can pray for them and we're going to pray for them right there we're going to give them information about the revival on the farm and we're going to trust god to do the supernatural number three our church consistently provides opportunities to participate and grow in evangelism outreach and missions 
This is closely connected to the previous survey question. We are providing some opportunities, but we would also like to provide additional opportunities to consistently be in our community with a specific goal of sharing the gospel. So what are our next steps as a body of believers? Three that I have, and three different levels that we talked about this morning. Discipleship. Back to the question, who are you discipling? Who is discipling you? The amazing thing about discipleship is that both people learn from one another. So while you are discipling someone, you are also being discipled by them. So the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning is this, to begin a discipleship relationship with one other person. I like what Wearsby says. He said, this is one of the greatest ways for the church to grow and for us to be joyful and happy as a body of believers. So the best model for this is to be in a discipling relationship with someone from the same sex, the same gender as you. So male with a male, female with a female. That's so important. Let's see how God will use this to grow his church and bring joy and happiness to everyone. Second area, fellowship of the believers. We saw in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, that the early church was devoted to several things, including fellowship. They enjoyed each other's company. They shared everything. They took care of one another. Their hearts were glad and sincere. They were praising, praying, and witnessing for Jesus. Their zeal and brotherly love um, were contagious, and the result was a healthy, growing church. So the next step today is to examine my zeal and brotherly love for Idaville Church so that we will be a church that attracts others to Christ. And then finally, sentence scattered. We're working towards creating a gospel team that will consistently and actively share the gospel in our community. We're also planning prayer walks, like I said, for the revival on the farm. We will continue to provide domestic and global mission opportunities. And there are just, these are just a few ways that we're encouraging you and providing opportunities for you to be sentence scattered. And so the final next step today is to just commit to participating in the opportunities provided by Idaho Church to make disciples. And then just from our strategic planning, and we did it to Dream Retreat, a couple of things. Core values, they're on the front of your bulletin this morning. Two of them really relate to what we're talking about this morning. One is we are a church that reaches out, spreading God's word, God's glory, and God's promises to those that do not, uh, that do not know him. And number, uh, the second one is we are a church who encourages our members to discover, develop, and use their spiritual gifts. Our core focus is our mission statement to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. It's biblical. Our growth strategy is reaching outside our walls. That's one of the three uniques that we think we have um, and will continue to work on. Our proven process is an intentional group to welcome and direct people as they begin visiting the church and to reinstitute our meal teams to, that will identify those that are visiting and invite them to a meal. And then our value proposition, our promise to those that are visiting is that within 90 days, guests should be con comfortable, connected, and committed to Idaville Church. And then we have some goals uh, for the year. To have a welcome team established and functioning. To have a short-term domestic mission trip in 2022. Have a 10% increase in the number of individuals serving in missions. And have a 10% increase in the pursuit of holiness as evidenced through salvations, baptisms, and accountability. That's the annual goal. And two quarterly goals underneath that annual goal are this. And that's to create a team that will intentionally and actively share the gospel in our community and then plan specific dates, times, and locations to have the gospel team in the community. As we close this morning, John Stott just shares this illustration. Robert uh, Bella, a sociologist who teaches at the University of California at Berkeley, is very interested in the influence of religion on the community. In an interview in Psychology Today, he said, we should not underestimate the significance of, a small, of the small group of people who have a new vision 
of a just and gentle world. The quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. 2%. He goes on. Stott goes on. He says, there are more, many more than 2% Christians in your country and mine. He's from England, by the way. Then, they, uh, then why aren't we having more effect? Why aren't we having more influence? I pray that God will call you to permeate non-Christian society for Christ, to take your stand there uncompromisingly with the value system and moral standards of Jesus. And this goes back to what I encouraged you with a little bit earlier. Like, is your relationship with Christ really valuable to you? Is learning to become more like Christ really valuable to you? Is church really valuable to you? I can't answer that question for you. You have to answer that question yourself. And it's evidenced by our actions and not just our speech. And so as we just allow the Holy Spirit to kind of allow that to sink in this morning, would you just bow your heads with me as the worship team comes? Why don't you stand too, because we're going to just worship the Lord as we close today. But Lord, we come to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that you have commissioned us, you have called us to take the gospel to all nations. Lord, we thank you that... You've told us how to do that, how to make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. And Lord, we just claim the promise today that you will be with us always as we accomplish that. Lord, today, would you work by your Holy Spirit in each heart and mind? Would you light a fire under us, Lord God, that cannot be put out? That we might go and share with those in our community, in our state, in our nation, and around the world. Lord, would you send people from this congregation to do your work in all of those locations, Lord? We just commit it to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.